I think we would all agree that the events of the last few days that we've watched on TV should cause us all to long for the king to return. Uh, I, uh, I just watch those things and I'm like, Lord, you said that we will cry for peace and there will be no peace until the Prince of Peace comes. And we look forward with anticipation. You should uh, not drive your tent pegs too far deeply into this world. You should have your eyes on the eternal kingdom. And we all, we all anticipate that. <clears throat> I hope you do. And if I haven't reminded you lately that Jesus is coming again, I need to remind you he's coming again. And I'm thankful for that. Today I want to talk about uh, there is a Redeemer. And we will be going through 13 verses of chapter 4. And we'll finish up the book of Ruth next week. I bet most of you thought I would never be able to preach a whole book this fast. But we did. Now at first glance, the book of Ruth may seem merely to be uh, about a family crisis. And granted, when you have a famine and you move to Moab and you lose, uh, you have death, successive deaths of a husband and two sons, and, and then you're husbandless and penniless in this time frame, you would say, yes, that's a family crisis. However, just reflect on the fact that our God saw fit to put this story in an entire book of the Bible. Think about that. It's only four chapters, but it holds one of the places of the 37 books in the Old Testament scriptures. That's pretty huge for God to put that in there. So I think it is strategic for us to understand the mind and the purpose of God. That's why he gave us the book of Ruth. And you can't study chapter 4 without seeing the centrality of Boaz, the Redeemer. He is going to be the only resolution for Naomi and Ruth. We see in verse 1 that Boaz takes the initiative in bringing about the act of redemption. In verses 8 through 9, he's going to pay the price. In verse, verses 9 and 10, he's going to publicly claim his own. He, in 9 and 10 again, well, actually in 14, he's going to, he provides a name and an inheritance where before there was only ruin. And then in verse 15, he restores and he sustains Naomi, even in old age, through the birth of Obed, in verse 15. So Ruth and Naomi could have done none of these things themselves. It took the kinsman redeemer for all of this to transpire. What a reversal of times. Do you remember what the text says in the days of the judges? Think about how that looked during that time frame. Perhaps the worst uh, time frame in all of Israel's history. And then what a reversal. Grace meets and grace answers the otherwise insoluble problems that were faced during the days of the judges. I think if we just reflect on that for a moment. In the period of the judges, when they ruled, here is God manifesting and working in grace. So we are equally unable to save ourselves. We should recognize this. And no other kinsman could ever possibly meet our need. The only one that could is the Lord Jesus Christ. So we suffer the deprivation uh, of our inheritance. And we suffer the consequences of our own sin and our rebellion against God. Please listen to Galatians. We'll go back there again. But listen to Galatians chapter 4 verse, five, verse 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come... 
God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Here it is. To redeem those who were under the law. So that, they, so that we might receive adoption as sons. The Son of God, by His incarnation, became our kinsman. So that by His sacrificial atoning death, He might also become our Redeemer. We've sung about Him today, right? What a blessed Redeemer we have. All our fundamental human needs and problems find their solution at the cross of Christ and in His glorious resurrection. I want to remind you again of the beautiful marital language that's communicated in the Bible from God to His bride. And some of you will remember that great text. Ezekiel 16. Listen to verse 8. When I passed by you again, this is the Lord God speaking to Israel, and saw you, behold, you were at age for love, at the age for love. I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. Beautiful marital language. And there is a complementary text to that particular language that's found in the book of Ephesians. And you know this. He's going to talk about the husband-wife relationship. And notice what he says when he gets down to chapter 5, verse 32. This mystery is profound. What mystery? Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And listen, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see she respects her husband. So I hope you understand that this covenantal aspect of God loving Israel in a marital union is similarly pointed out when you get to Ephesians 5 when it talks about the role of the husband and wife in marital relationships he heightens all of that to the real reality the real reality first was Christ's love for his church and then God created marriage and boy howdy is there a lot of overtones of teaching from that particular paradigm of what we're missing in our world. That's the reason God had one man for one woman to picture the bride and the bridegroom, which can't be done any other way. There's a marriage supper of the Lamb. So all of this is seen through the lenses of the fact that God created marriage beautifully, right? But he started it with Christ and his love for his church. And then he, as an analogy of that reality, he created man for woman to live that out. And so I point that out to you to remind you that Boaz's marriage to Ruth points us to Christ's marriage to his bride, the church. And we started off talking about the second coming. And folks, I'm telling you, Jesus is coming again to get his bride. He is. He saved his bride. He will come back. So Naomi says that Boaz will not rest until he gets all these arrangements taking place. She was right, wasn't she? Now, for some of you, you thought... Uh, when you get to this point, you're thinking, there's another man who, won't, who might marry Ruth. So what really should take place is a sword duel right at the city gates. And whoever wins the duel gets the woman. But unfortunately, that's not the way it works. You, you've watched too many movies, if that's what you thought about. Or if I put that idea into your mind, maybe I've watched too many of these dueling things. But the fact is, that's where we are in chapter 4. Beginning in verse 1, I hope we've set the context well for you. Naomi says he will not rest. And here's the next day. 
and we're kind of left hanging. Is it going to be this nearer kinsman we don't know anything about, or is it going to be Boaz? But here's the text, verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken, that's previously in chapter 3, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Boy, does that ever throw a wrench into our story. Then Boaz said, ace up the sleeve, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, and he doesn't leave this out, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting attestation in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi, all, the, all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon. Actually, that translation can be moreover. It can actually be more importantly. Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife. To perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place, you are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah, and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and don't you love these words, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Okay, let's tackle this. The first thing I want you to see is that the Redeemer satisfies the legal requirements of the law. Did y'all know that there were legalities involved? You couldn't just say, I'm a Redeemer, and go after it. There, we talked about that last week. You had to have certain aspects of relation and wealth and being willing, and all these things are part of it. But before Boaz can pursue what we might call the romance of redemption... He must go through the legal process to secure his redemption or secure his bride. So the first thing was the satisfaction of the legal requirements. Now, what about the city gate here? Well, 
it would be the best place to find this near kinsman. Because the city gate could be viewed as the courtroom. In that time frame, business, business issues took place at the city gate. There wasn't a courtroom where they went. They would actually assemble at the gate to deal with these kinds of things. So I, I would suggest to you that Boaz goes to the city gate because this guy is probably going to get up early in the morning and he's going to have to exit the gate, the one entrance into the city, to go out into his fields to work. Does that make sense? He would have owned a field. Uh, he had an inheritance and he was working that field. So the city gate was also where legal transactions took place. The elders would assemble. They would take care of business matters. Do you think Boaz got up early that morning? Oh, I bet he did. I bet he got up early that morning, earlier than normal, to get there. We see that the near kinsman is passing by. He was possibly on his way again out to his field, and Boaz says, Now the ESV, NASB, I don't know what your translation says at this point, but the ESV says friend, but it's actually Poloni Almoni. Hmm, how would you like to name your kid that? Well, that's just a, that's a Hebrew idiom. So this is vitally important. It would be what's called a farago. That's the expression of terminology which is used here. You use faragos all the time. That gives me the heebie-jeebies. Now, exactly what does that mean? Right? Or, come sit down with me, Mr. Fiddle-Faddle. Or, Mr. So-and-so. Uh, a better translation may be, hey you, sit down. Now, don't you find it interesting that the writer decides not to even give you the name of Mr. Fiddlefaddle? He uses this expression. There's a reason for it. Some people think that the writer, due to the fact that this kinsman was not willing to redeem Ruth, decides not to perpetuate his name. And to leave his name obscure. I don't know what the case is. But it is very interesting that he is called Poloni Almoni and not given a name. He says turn aside. And so with that rhyme, Poloni Almoni, he does so. He sits there. And again, uh, Boaz was a man of stature. We know that he was wealthy. We know about his character. And of course, if... Mr. Poloni Almoni walks by. Mr. Hey, you gets there. Mr. So-and-so, he says to him, hey, sit down. Well, Boaz would have had the respect from this man for him to put on the brakes and say, okay, what's going on? Verse 2, he assembles a legal team. And we want to say at this point, Boaz, what are you doing? Why are you going through all this? Why don't you just get the hand of the bride? But that's not what he does. He follows the legal procedure. He's not going to do anything that would jeopardize his potential redemption of Ruth. He can't bypass the proceedings of redemption just because of love. Now, it is because of love that he fulfills the legal sanctions of redemption, but he can't go in reverse. In verse 3 and 4, he presents the case. Are you kind of puzzled at what he's doing here? I mean, the first thing he does is goes for the land. He says, there's this piece of land that is left. And we're thinking, why don't you just cut to the chase? Why are you going through all this legal stuff? But he doesn't start with Ruth. He starts with Naomi, and he starts with a piece of property. There's some stuff that needs to be redeemed. Now, perhaps her land is uncultivated. Perhaps uh, it's small. Perhaps someone took possession of it when the family went off to Moab. We don't know for sure. But we do know from the text that she's got the right to sell that piece of property so that Ruth and Naomi could actually survive. And so Boaz makes clear the redemption rights for the nearer kinsmen. 
And he asks the question, will you act as the kinsman redeemer? So he lays all of it out with integrity. And the dude, Mr. Poloni Almoni says, I will redeem it. And we have a snag, right? At this point, Boaz, what are you doing? If you give this guy the redemption right, he also gets the bride. He gets Ruth too. So Boaz actually has an ace up his sleeve. Now, he is a man of integrity, but he's not a fool, right? In his dealings, he's not a fool. So he has a master stroke that will secure the redemption. He is certainly acting in the utmost integrity. And on the day, you by the field, you must be the kinsman redeemer for Ruth. Do you think he said it like this? Ruth, the Moabitess. I think he said it like that just to kind of add to it a little bit. So he's thinking about race and the fact that she's not an Israelite. Uh, and he may have added this too. Do you remember that little kid named Malon that used to run around here back when we were younger? Yeah, the kid named Sickly. Yes, not only do you have to marry a Moabitess, but you've got to perpetuate the line of this little kid named Sickly. How does that feel for you? Now, I'm just adding in some things, glorified imagination, right? And then the guy responds, wait a minute. This doesn't sound like too good of a deal after all. I'm telling you, Boaz knew this. He knew that when he brought in Ruth and he brought in uh, what the nearer kinsman was going to have to do. And so he responds, I cannot act. And as he looked at securing this piece of property, that looked good for his financial portfolio, right? But when you add in Ruth, when you add in inheritance, when you add in multiple children, and how that inheritance is going to be divided out, uh, he saw his investment going down the tubes. This would not be the best thing to do. But I can't help but think that his response to Ruth, the Moabitess, is probably what did it, right? All that was involved in marrying a foreigner and what God had said about the Moabites. She's a non-Israelite. Now, I don't know if you've ever witnessed it or not at the, at the courtroom, but have you ever witnessed a sandal ceremony at our courtroom? No, I don't think you have. As a matter of fact, the writer has to remind the reader that it even existed. Now, I told you that I felt like it had a connection to Deuteronomy 25, and it does with the heel as a way of insult, but, but the shoe could also be given as, as handing over the possession of ownership, okay? For instance, do you remember when the Lord told the Israelites, every square foot of ground that your foot touches will be yours, right? Y'all remember that? Well, so this is akin to that. Showing the heel was a sign of insult, but the foot was also a sign of dominion and possession. And when he hands Boaz his shoe, he's transferring the right of redemption to Boaz. Boaz follows the legal proceedings to a T. He satisfies the requirements to redeem her. But Boaz is not just acting, folks, in accordance with the law. He's also acting out of love. And that's the second thing I want you to see. The Redeemer not only satisfies the legal requirements of the law, but he also secures his bride through an act of love. And beginning in verse 9, Boaz declares by this exchange that he has redemption rights. Boaz has complete ownership of everything that had been lost. What a reversal of Moab. We might say we've gone from Moab's miseries to Bethlehem's blessings. Everything Elimelech had given up through his disobedience to God, Boaz had bought back by satisfying the legal rights of redemption. But this is also important. In verse 10, he states it this way. Again, moreover, also, or more importantly, I have required, acquired Ruth the Moabite, 
the wife of Malon, to be my wife. Putting those words in there. Legally, I've done everything I'm supposed to do. But also, here is the blessing of the love of the kinsman redeemer. I don't really believe that all the stuff was that important to Boaz. I think when you get to the end of chapter 4 and you learn what kind of woman Ruth is and how, much, how she was better than, I can't remember the text, we could look at it now. A lot, she was worth way more than all the sons that she could ever have because of the fact that God had sovereignly worked in such an incredible way. So the people are watching. The people give a blessing. May you become like Rachel and Leah. Now that's a sordid story, isn't it? What exactly does the writer mean, may you become like Rachel and Leah? Because we know that there was some turmoil in that household. Lesson to be learned, you only lead one wife, right? No, we could talk about that. But the fact is, you, you see that the writer is saying this for a particular reason. These are the two women who brought by the hand of God into existence the entire nation of Israel. Correct? They, they're the ones that brought about the birth of the 12 tribes. And so the progeny, the, uh, the nation of Israel, all that had been accomplished through them, they asked for Boaz's fame to spread and grow. The best way to understand this, I think, is Boaz's seed. He would have a lasting wealth attached to his name because of the sons that he and Ruth would bear. Now, verse 12 is highly peculiar. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Now, do you know the Old Testament story of Tamar and Judah? If you've chronologically read through the Bible or you've gone to Sunday school, I'm sure you have heard this particular story. But under the Leverite marriage laws, uh, Tamar's husband had died. And she demanded that Judah give her his oldest son. And what did Judah do? I'm not going to do it. And so, uh, this left her without a son. Again, this story is kind of sordid. If you know the story, Tamar actually dresses up like a prostitute. And she encounters Judah, her father-in-law, and she becomes pregnant. He, of course, does not realize that it's Tamar. And she does something very savvy. She takes Judah's ring and staff as a down payment, holding it until he came back to pay her. So when Judah comes back to the prostitute, she's gone. She's not there. They inquire about, he inquires about it, and they say, there is no such a person here. We don't even know who it is. He finds out a little later that the daughter-in-law, Tamar, is pregnant. And he proceeds to act like any good, sensitive father-in-law would. He says, bring her out. Let's burn her. Y'all not listening too well. And that's what they're going to do. But he says, who is the father? And she says, or they say, it is the man of which this staff and ring belong. Oops. Talk about an ace up the sleeve, right? And uh, the line of Judah, that's how Perez came into this world. Y'all get that, right? So the line of Judah is the line which God in his sovereign purpose will choose to bring the Messiah through that line. The house of Perez. So again, our God declares that the scepter will not depart from Shiloh until the Prince of Peace 
comes. Even in the midst of this dark and sordid affair, God was bringing about his purpose that through the line of Judah, the Messiah, the Son of God, would be born. So, how do we put this together? Well, I would say that Tamar is seen as an outsider. I would say that she's also in line of Leverite marriage, just like Ruth was. And I would say to you at this point that she's going to bear children, even in the midst of a terrible circumstance. And those descendants will become strong in the line of Judah. And that's exactly what the people are asking the blessing, blessing to be. Amazing. And then verse 13 brings us to the wedding day. It's good stuff, isn't it? It is. This is the romance of redemption. There is tremendous romance, ladies and gentlemen, in our redemption through Jesus Christ. Our redemption through Jesus Christ is not just a set of legalities of a great term called the doctrine of justification. There is romance. There is love. There is language of covenantal marriage to the Lord. In eternity past, I believe the Bible teaches that the Father gave the Son His bride from eternity past. You've got a right to disagree, and, and I'm not going to fall out with you. That's why we read the Bible and interpret it, right? But I believe the Father gave the Son the bride before the foundation of the world. Okay? And when the Son of God entered into this world, He came in to secure that bride unto Himself. And when He comes back again, He's going to take that bride away to Himself. In eternity past, our blessed kinsman Redeemer was given a bride by His Father. Jesus could say in John 6, 7, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Well, that's good, isn't it? People of every race, every tribe, every tongue, in this entire world make up that glorious bride. There is, however, a legal obstacle of the Son of God getting. Are y'all tracking? There's a legal obstacle. There, there are requirements in the way of the son getting that bride. And the problem is all of the human race of Adam has fallen. Do you know how holy God is? He is so holy that he cannot even entertain the thought of sin. Habakkuk chapter 2. And here, here is the entire human race. And you know what? You've got a legal representative on that side too. And his name is Adam. And I know that's not popular in our world to, to credit our sinful nature to another man when we didn't actually sin with him in the garden, like physically, right? But you did, right? But you are, your sin is in you because you have a representative, and his name is Adam. So, but like Adam, even the Israelites. Did y'all know this verse was in there? I was tracking this, and I'd never seen this verse. Hosea chapter 6, verse 7. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. You know, have you ever thought about Adam in the garden dealing faithlessly with God by the decision he made in the garden, which plunged the entire human race? And so then he credits Israel in the same ballgame. And then Paul in chapter 3 of Romans is going to say, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then in Romans 5.12, it reminds us, here's the verse. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Understand this. 
When did all sin? We sinned when Adam sinned. Every human being that has ever lived fell when Adam fell in the garden. Did y'all know there's no such thing in the world as human innocence? We're all sinners. We're all guilty. We're all fallen in Adam. We're all legally declared sinners condemned in Adam. Whether we understand that or not, it's not the point. That's the way the sovereign God of the world constituted the world. That's why Romans 5, 5.12 is given. And we should be glad for this. And you say, what do you mean? You should be glad that Paul told you in Romans 5.12 that because of Adam's sin, we're all sinners. If you don't believe that, then you don't believe verses 15 and, uh, 15, uh, excuse me, 18 and 19. And listen to what they say. Chapter 5, verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's sin, disobedience to Adam, that many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Folks, if you don't believe that you were made sinners by Adam, then you can't believe that Jesus Christ, the one man after Adam, can make you righteous. You can't have one without the other. Right? If you say one's not true, then Jesus can't be the one man who makes you right before God. So you can't deny one without denying the other. Our kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ, comes to redeem his bride. But like Boaz, he must follow and meet all the requirements. He must not, for love's sake, say the law doesn't matter. Because it does. He, he knows the requirements are there. Again, Galatians 4.4, 4, In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a virgin, born under the law, that He might redeem those who were under the law. Who's under the law? Everybody. Everybody's under the law. The kinsman redeemer also must be without sin. 1 Peter 2.2 reminds us that He was the spotless Lamb of God. Reminded in 1 Corinthians that He that knew no sin became sin for us. So if he's going to fulfill the legal laws of the demands of the demands of the law, he has to be absolutely perfect. I hope you're tracking with me in relation to what's going on in the book of Ruth, but he had to perfectly and actively fulfill the law of God on behalf of his bride in order for that bride to be secured. Are y'all listening? Jesus had to do this, and if you're a student of the New Testament, you know that that's what the Bible says. This means that his perfect obedience, check with me, track with me, his perfect righteousness serves as the legal representative on behalf of the bride that he is redeeming. Again, listen to that text in Romans. You have to think about this. Romans 5, 19. The Bible says, For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. How does that happen? It's made that way because of the righteousness of Jesus fulfilling the law's demands, perfectly obeying it so that we actually obey the law. Again, I shouldn't have left Romans so fast, but look how this look, works. Romans 8, verse 3. Listen. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Listen, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled in us by our kinsman redeemer. 
Don't y'all understand that's why there's no way someone can go to heaven without Jesus? Because the law requirements must be fulfilled in order for you to be saved. Uh, I've said this a lot. Do you have to keep the Ten Commandments to be saved? Yes! Can you keep the Ten Commandments? No! That's why you got to have somebody who did. Are y'all getting the gospel? I've been at this church for three and a half years. Do you know the gospel? The gospel is, yes, you got to keep all ten. Can you? No. That's why you have a legal representative who obeyed every aspect of it 100%. And when you trust him, when the father looks at you, he sees the son's obedience on your behalf. You ought to be happy about that. You should never come back in the church and sing like this. You ought to lift your voice because there's a redeemer who came to save. Don't you love the old hymns that highlight this glorious transaction? Don't you? Now I, no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, the, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach, isn't this audacious? Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Don't you see that all you have as a bride was given to you by the Redeemer? The reason you can boldly approach the throne today is all because of Jesus. Yet he did not do all of this just for the law's sake. He did it out of love for his bride. Now folks, don't miss this. If you're a student of the word, you ought to love the doctrine of justification. That's great. But what about the love of God? in all of this. For God so loved the world. In this manner God loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So don't forget this. If you just see your salvation as a legal transaction from a forensic state where God declared you righteous and, and you believed and thus you are on your way to heaven. If that's all you see about salvation then folks you're missing it. Why? Because there is wonderful, incredible marital language given of how much the Savior loved you. There's a reason that he hung suspended between heaven and earth on the cross and did not take himself down. He could have, but love kept him on the cross of Christ. Love kept him there on your behalf. Listen to Paul. I have been crucified with Christ. Yet, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There is a romance in our redemption. Why do you think he brings this up in Ephesians 5? Husbands, I'm glad you men spoke up. Love your wives. Why does he bring this up? Because there is romance in redemption. Remember, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then he turns around at the end and says, this is a wonderful mystery. But I tell you... I've said all this about husband and wives, but I'm really talking about Christ and his church. Isn't that awesome? We're reminded of that love that he has. There's a romance. Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. That he gave himself for, here, so, for him. So our kinsman redeemer fulfilled the legal requirements of redemption, but he did it out of love. Now there are two extremes out there today. We have those in church and, and Christians around the world who, who over who only emphasize the romance of redemption so that they're totally and completely ignorant of the legalities of redemption. They're totally ignorant of what Jesus Christ did in order to procure their salvation. It's a sad thing when you don't think about doctrine, when you don't think about teaching. And we live in a day where we're, we're just pummeled with trivialities, are we not? 
I mean, people just shoot stuff out on Facebook, and they don't, they've, 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 they're so open-minded, their brain's falling out. And they shoot things out there, all these trivialities, right? With no substance. No, that's why you need to avoid putting stuff out on Facebook. Let me just give you a forewarning. Don't do it. Don't do it. Amen, right? Don't put stuff out when you haven't thought through things accurately and biblically. That's not a good idea because people read that. And, it, and although I don't have Facebook, people will bring it to me and say, look what this person says. And then I have to respond to that. Don't put me in that situation. Just, just don't do that. So there's, there's people who, they think only about that aspect, emotionalism and those parts of the love of God. And he is wonderful. But they do it at the expense. They don't even think about what it costs. They don't think about justification. Look, if it wasn't for justification, you couldn't love him at all. Right? So we have to put it all together. Charles Wesley wrote, Jesus, lover of my soul, let me, let me to thy bosom fly. Don't you love that? Praise God for redemption. That it wasn't just legal. We have redemption and we have a salvation that is depicted in a husband's love for his wife. Now here's my question. Has Jesus Christ loved you with the love of a kinsman redeemer? And has he bought you as his bride? Has he loved you with the love of a kinsman redeemer? Has he embraced you and made you his own through covenantal love? Do you notice there's a huge difference between have you ever prayed a prayer and have you ever walked an aisle? Those three questions are pretty serious. If he's the kinsman redeemer, and he is, and he came for his bride, isn't it a, uh, isn't it a viable statement to ask, are you his bride? Has he taken you in? Is he your kinsman Redeemer, I'm asking you to reflect on the question in your mind and heart of Jesus becoming your kinsman redeemer. Now here's the question. How do you know that Jesus looks at you and considers you as a part of his bride? How do you know that Jesus Christ has secured your redemption at Calvary? How do you know that he has embraced you and that he's loved you with an everlasting love? I'm telling you folks, there's nothing in this world that compares to the love of a Savior. No amens? There's nothing that compares in this world to the love of the Savior for his people. Nothing. Now, how do you know that you've experienced his redeeming love? Here it is. It's real simple. It's because your heart now goes out after him. You wives, how do you respond to your husband? And you say, well, if he's loving me like he ought to. No, that's not what it says. But ultimately, when he's loving you as Christ loved the church, that's the paradigm we're looking for, right? And she willingly aligns herself up under that authority. Not, not she does it voluntarily. So when, when that marital relationship is like it ought to be physically, then the wife ought to go out after her husband, right? And if you're saved by grace through faith, then you ought to, your heart ought to be moving toward the things and the person of Christ. Does that make sense? Folks, it ought to make perfect sense. How do you know? It's simple because your heart now goes out after him in love and in faith. Your heart goes out after him as your all-sufficient treasure. Your heart goes out after him with a love that is unmatched with any other love in this world. Be careful there. Because that means your family, that means your job, that means your vocation. It means that no other love can be matched with the love that you have for Jesus. 
I'm just teaching you the New Testament, really. That's what 1 John is about. How do you know that you love God? Bang, bang, bang. How do you know that you're born of God? He gives all these understandings of it. He gives this verse. We love because he first loved us. Do you know you don't even have the capacity to agape? That kind of, you don't have that capacity to love apart from the love of God. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God. Check this out. He that loves not does not know God, for God is of love. For God is love. Think about that. We love him. And I love this verse. Verse 10 of chapter 4 of 1 John. In this is love. Listen to this clearly, folks. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Hallelujah. For our Redeemer, who loved us, we have a kinsman Redeemer today who is seated at the right hand of the Father. It gets better, doesn't it? And the Bible says he is continually making intercession for you. How do you know you're going to make it to heaven today if you're saved? How do you know you can't lose your salvation? Because the Savior is never going to stop praying for you. Without, the only way to die and go to hell as a believer is for the Son of God to stop praying for you. And the Scripture says he does it unceasingly, forever. He intercedes for his bride that he bought. Now, if you've been loved by Christ, then you ought to have much love for him. Does that make sense? That's what the redeeming. There is a redeemer. He loved us with an everlasting love. And if you've been loved by him like that, there ought to be much love for the redeemer. That's why we come to church. The first reason we come to church is not to invite the lost. I get that. What you ought to be doing is winning the lost when you leave this church. The church was never designed to be the market to do all the fluff stuff to bring in people to share the gospel. The church is designed to go out of here, worship the Lord, go out of here, and win the community for Christ. Does that make sense? When we come in here as believers, we ought to be lifting our voices to the King, to the Redeemer who loved us and gave himself for us. And then evangelism will take care of itself. Any theology that you have that doesn't lead you to have a heart for souls is not a good theology. Right? But when you fall in love with Jesus because he's given you much, then you want others to have that same joy and satisfaction. Amen? Whew, I could have preached on, but it's 10 o'clock. All right? You've been faithful. Thanks so much for listening. This week, I was walking out of the building and a song popped in my mind. He loved me with a cross. It was written by Lorne Harris, and I'm, I'm dating my age, but not as old as David. Is, um, I'm going to be 50 on July 7th. Golly. Boy, uh, time has just flown by. But He Loved Me with a Cross was written by, written by Larnell, and it brings together all these aspects of the Kinsman Redeemer. The altar is going to be open. Stay six feet away from each other if you come. No, I'm kidding. If you need to trust Christ, I'm going to be sitting down front. Do you know him? That he's taken you in as, as his bride? As David sings this song, would you reflect on the words of this song and what it means to your life? His throne in heaven to come to Bethlehem, and I will not forget the way He loved me even then, and. Every 
God bless.